So we're reintroduced at the end of chapter, or we're introduced, excuse me, to Saul at the end of chapter 7. Now, if you remember the end of chapter 7, Stephen becomes the first martyr of this new church. And Saul, Pharisee, was there giving his thumbs up approval to the death and execution and stoning of Stephen. And we see him again at the beginning of chapter 8 where he continues on now, as Scripture tells us, ravaging the church, trying to destroy this church, destroy and imprison and maybe even put to death more of these Christians, these people that are following Jesus. This is Saul. But we also are made aware of a little bit more of who he is by his own words in Scripture. And that's the beauty of God's Word that he reveals in his way to even give us a little bit of a biography if we just look around a little bit more. So in Saul's own words, who is he? What is his background? Well, we have to go to Philippians chapter 3. You don't need to turn there. But I just want to hear in Saul's own words, what is his background? What, is his, what was his life? He says in Philippians 3 verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So this is a pure Jewish man by background. He goes on to say, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. So in a sense, in his career, and his calling for his life, he was pursuing that occupation, so to speak, of Pharisee. Knowing the law, studying the law, and then doing everything he possibly could to keep people, his people, accountable to the law. He goes on to say, as to zeal, which means passion, purpose, a persecutor of the church, so in his background as a Jew, a Pharisee, and studying the law, the word of God, as to his purpose to persecute the church. So in his mind, he followed God, he was doing God's work, and this new church was not part of God's plan, according to what he had studied and what he had known. So he's doing everything he could to destroy it. That was his life, that's what he set out to do. But he finishes by saying, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You, hear that? you feel that chest puffing out, that brain getting bigger, like, this is who I am. I was blameless. I was, I was the best of the best, the Hebrew of Hebrews. Blameless under the law. I knew everything, and I was rising through the ranks to be the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And maybe if the Lord had allowed and not grabbed him in this moment, maybe he even would have become one of those high priests that he had studied under. Who knows? But that's who he is. But if we add something to it, what we would read later on in Acts chapter 22, that he claims that he was a Roman citizen by birth. So what we can surmise from that is his dad at some point was probably a Roman citizen, so he was also born into Roman citizenship. So this is an important man in this era. When we talk about Israel being under Roman occupation, he's got a leg up there. As a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, perfect under the law, he's kind of the best of both worlds in his mind as he's speaking to. 
And his life purpose, as we mentioned, he even restates in Galatians chapter 1, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That's who he was. Are you passionate about your career, your job, where God is, what God has given you to do? So much so, you're going to do anything possible to rise through the ranks to accomplish everything you possibly can in that career. This is what Saul was doing. Feeling as if he was doing God's work by persecuting and destroying this church, these Christians, these followers of a dead Jesus that they were just trying to eliminate because it was a threat to who they were. So, that's Saul. Let's now take a look at this amazing moment he has with Jesus. So in verses 1 through 3, let's start there in Acts chapter 9. You can read along with me. should be up on the screen behind me as well. In verse 1 it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So he's continuing on in his God-given profession and pursuit, isn't he? But if we just look at verse 1 again, this is defining his life. It's defining his demeanor, that he is breathing threats and murder. Have you ever come in contact with somebody that is so filled with hate, angst, hatred, whatever it might be, that it just, it's exuding from them? It's changing their persona, their personality, that that's how they're living their life and they're not letting go of it? You'd hate somebody so much, you're just... <sighs> You just get that animal instinct. I just want to do them harm. This is, the, this is the imagery that we're getting of who Saul is and what he's really setting out to do. But he desires to carry on in his zealous ways. He's seeking the approval of his high priest, so he's following the law, doing what he needs to do properly, seeking the approval of the high priest, who more than likely at this time is Caiaphas, who was the one that sentenced Jesus to death, to travel to Damascus, which Damascus, I'm sorry if I had a map, I'd put it up, but Damascus is about 130 miles north of Jerusalem. If you can kind of picture that in your mind, or if you have a map in the back of your Bible, check it out sometime. But Damascus is about 130 miles north of Jerusalem. And Saul was born in Tarsus, which is just a little more north and west of that at the top end of the Mediterranean Sea. But he's hearing that there is a large pocket or group of Christians in Damascus. So hearing this, he feels, I need to go there and rid Damascus of these Christians. And so he gets his approval. He gets a letter giving him the authority to do what is necessary to expel these Christians. But he says, and what's interesting about the terminology that Luke uses here in Acts 9, he says, any belonging to the way. This is the early term for Christianity. The term Christian is not in use yet. And so those belonging to the way, why would, would they say that? Well, it's what Jesus taught, number one. It's who he said he was, 
And what we can surmise is that they were probably utilizing that term themselves as to who they were and how they identified themselves as belonging to Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ. Because he would say in John 14, 6, I am the way. So here is being used as kind of a capital W, way, right, and who they were identifying with. In verse 3, it says, Saul went on his way. Now, I think that's interesting, that he is going to destroy anybody that belongs to the way, and so he continues on his way. Now, we could bypass that very easily, couldn't we? Now, he's just continuing on to Damascus. But if we look at that word and what it's saying, he's continuing on his way. And what is his way? What is our way apart from Christ? It is everything that Saul was prior to Christ. Threats, murder, hatred, zeal, passion, pride, accomplishment, and because of who you are, everything that you've done, that is our way apart from Christ. So if we see that Saul is continuing on his way, that path of destruction, murder, envy, hatred, self-righteousness, and spiritual blindness, that's his way as he's traveling to Damascus to try and eliminate this, this church and this influence. And it's important that we talk about that because Jesus not only called himself the way, he said to walk in the way is extremely difficult. What did Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 7? Verse 13 says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to what? Destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. When we walk in the way, capital W, the way of Christ, it's going to be difficult. Because every day as you try and follow Jesus Christ, it is difficult. Jesus himself said, it is hard. It is difficult. It won't be easy. So if everybody in here, if you say you've received Christ and you're following the way, then your life is probably very difficult. Should be. Mentally, emotionally, every day, because you have to battle against going your way. Don't you? We all do. It's difficult. Constant battle to fall right back into pre-Paul. Saul, as he's known at this moment. But it said that light from heaven shone around him. And if you go to Acts 22 and Acts 26, those are complementary testimonies that Paul would give to others about his life and about his conversion experience. So if we look at Acts 22, verse 6, Paul, Saul explains that at this moment when the light shone from heaven, it was about noon. So what does that tell us? When the sun was at the highest point in the Middle Eastern day, there was something brighter. That light from heaven shone around him and was so distracting and bright, it physically caused him and all those traveling with him to fall to their knees, if not their face.
So when we think that we understand, when we think we've got a grasp on this life, when you get comfortable, content, and you think you can carry on doing things your way, you know what that is? It's humanism. That's why there's a period in history called the Enlightenment Age. When man thought he could reason, man thought he could do everything in his power, philosophy and religion and music and art, that whole era of enlightenment was man's way, man's prospering, man's uh, wisdom, and in every way to fix and, and figure out this life that we have. When you think you can handle things on your own, that is humanism. It's the enlightenment of man that says, I know what I'm doing. I can handle this life on my own, in my wisdom. And if you have any understanding of who Christ is, he'll use something pretty powerful to allow you to realize that that's not true. And in a moment, drop you to your knees by the light of him or his word or his purpose, whatever he wants to use. For Saul, it was this beaming light. That caused everybody around him to just drop and pause and have to stop. Not just because it was noon and it was hot. and It was more than that. And why do we know it was more than that? By the testimony of those that were there, that saw the light. And they themselves were dropped to their knees as well. There were eyewitness accounts that this was real. Not just a hallucination or, or whatever else. So when we think we understand, the knowledge of God is greater. Isaiah 55, verse 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So be aware is what I'm saying when you feel you've got things under control, that you can handle things on your own, that you know everything about everything that you need to know for your life. God is reminding you, I know more than you. <laughs> I, I, I know a little bit more than you. I'm a little bit higher than you. I've kind of got a handle on this whole creation thing. Just follow me. Rest in me. Let me answer all your questions. Let's look at verses 4 through 6 in this story. Verse 4 says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Again, there's things here that I want to pause on and take a look at. So from having a quite a moment of pause, not knowing what's happening, but Saul in his studies of God's word, knowing something like this that happens. He was familiar with the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew everything and how God presented himself to others. And when you hear a voice from heaven, that's why he responds with, who are you, Lord? He knew, but he still asked the question. So here Saul has a momentary conversation with Jesus. But Jesus starts the conversation, doesn't he, by asking a very important question. 
But not only the question that he asked, it's how Jesus asked the question. And this is what I want to spend just a little bit of time on. He asked, why are you persecuting me? Why? How many times as as parents, for the parents in the room, parents watching online, have you caught your children doing something and maybe you said the words, what are you doing? What are you doing? Maybe they're taking a, you know, the cliche cookie out of the jar before dinner or they've got fingerprints on the wall or something greater, more dangerous or whatever it might be. They're on the roof ready to jump off on, into the pool or something. I don't know. Not that that was an experience for my life. But parents might look at you and go, what are you doing? Like, are you out of your mind? Because when you ask what... For us that has asked that question, we can simply respond with the outer layer of understanding and just simply answer the question. You ask me what I'm doing? Well, I'm on the roof and I wanted to jump into the pool. I don't care that it's only three feet deep on this side because I'm not thinking through the consequences. But I'll tell you what I'm doing or if I get caught or if I've got crumbs on my face as a little you know, five-year-old before dinner and you're chewing the last remnants of the cookie and and mom asks, what are you doing? Nothing. I didn't do anything. And he gives you a moment when you're asked what to maybe tell the truth or to, well, let's just call it a lie. We can say stretch the truth, but isn't a half-truth a lie? So you're going to tell the truth or you're going to lie or you're just going to simply rationalize what it is that you're doing. But Christ didn't do that in this circumstance because that would have given Saul the opportunity to say, well, I'm traveling to Damascus. I'm carrying on with my business. I'm just doing what God has called me to do. But he didn't ask what. He asked why. So it brought Paul, uh, Saul, excuse me, I'm going I'm to do that all the time, just so you're aware. We always want to call him Paul, but in this quick moment, he's still Saul. So, the same person. It brought Saul to a place where he had to consider his logic, consider his reasoning for why he was doing the greater purpose of what he was doing rather than just where he was going. If we simply ask what, it reveals just that outer layer. It doesn't dig deep enough, does it? Psalm 139, verse 4. This is a good reminder for any of us. When we start to rationalize, when we start to justify our actions by what we do or what we've said or whatever else, thinking, well, I can can attach this to God's word. I can attach this to my life in Christ. However, remember these words and reminder in Psalm 139. Even before a word is on your tongue, God knows it altogether. So continue to spout your rationalization. Continue to tell your half-truths. Just remember, those of us in Christ, God knows what we're going to say before it's even on our tongue. And to clarify that, Proverbs 19.5 tells us a false witness, a fancy word for a lie, will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will not escape. Can I connect that to Paul's demeanor in heading to Damascus? What was he doing? He was breathing these threats, breathing these thoughts of murder. 
He knew what he was going to do, what he wanted to do. But God reminded him here, a false witness, a lie will not go unpunished. So, you have an opportunity. You you as a parent ever been in a situation with your children where you knew exactly what they did? There was absolutely no getting around them trying to coerce or rationalize their their way or tell you their truth because you know exactly what happened. And so you can just kind of stand there with the knowledge in your head. You can go ahead, tell me whatever you want to tell me in this moment. But you don't say that. (laughs) You just let them fumble through their words. and, And sometimes even their words don't even get out of their mouth. And you can just see them thinking through like, I'm caught. I'm in trouble. What are the consequences? What can I even say in this moment? Now, oh, see, that's, that's, that's what goes on here, and God knows. Before it gets from here to here, He already knows. And if you want to carry on that lie, carry on that false testimony of what you are doing, claiming it to be for the Lord, or rationalizing it that it's not sin, justifying your actions, remember God already knows. He already knows. And in Saul's case, he knew exactly what was going on. Did Jesus really need that answer? No, but this is the conversation. This is the relationship we have with Jesus. He knows all. He knows everything. He knows our thoughts. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows before words come even out of our mouth. He knows, but yet he wants us to communicate with him. And so we ask the question, why are you persecuting me? Because he wants that deeper reflection, that examination of our heart as to where we truly are in the moment and what we need or what we're lacking, and then fall before him and say, I don't know anything. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know what's going on. All I know is I need help. Suri just knew he needed to be here. He didn't know why. He didn't know what he needed. He didn't know how to respond to getting more help. He, offering food, offering clothes, or offering assistance. He didn't want anything. I just want to be here. He just knew he wanted to be here, and he knew he wanted to stop sinning, but he didn't know anything else. But in that moment, he just needed to drop to his knees if he was there to say, God, I need you first, foremost, above everything. Remember, Jeremiah 17 reminds us the heart is deceitful above all else. Whenever you hear in society from your friends, from your coworkers, from online or the news or whatever else, just follow your heart and do whatever you want to do. and Try and succeed on your own and, and, and get yours and, and because what your heart tells you is, is your heart. So it's your emotion. It's true. It's for you. No, that is a lie because God's word says the heart is deceitful. Don't follow your heart. (laughs) That way leads to destruction. It's desperately sick, scripture says. Who can understand it? But in verse 10 of Jeremiah, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. See what God is doing for Saul in this moment? It's testing him. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So ultimately, why do we do what we do? We don't like to answer that question sometimes. 
When we get convicted of the things that we do, we ask, why am I doing this? Why am I still caught up in this? Why can't I release myself of this, what I know is outright blatant sin against God and his word? Why do I do these things that I do? Well, since we're talking about Saul, let's let Saul answer that. In his words, eventually what he would write to young pastor Timothy, he would write these words in 1 Timothy 1. Formally, speaking to Timothy, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's Saul's answer. Why am I doing these things? He would later say, because I was ignorant to the truth. I was acting ignorantly in unbelief. So the short answer, why was I doing these things? I had no clue. Because I was following my heart and what I wanted to do because of the hatred I had towards those people that I knew went against the word of God that I interpreted the way I wanted it to. And so I wanted to get rid of them because they were a threat to me and my authority. He was ignorant. He didn't know any better. But... There's something else in this simple question that Jesus asks. What was Saul doing? The outer layer, going to Damascus, imprisoning these Christians. That's what he was doing. But Jesus asked, why are you persecuting me? That may have confused Saul for a moment. I don't know who you are, because who are you, Lord, he asks. He says, why are you persecuting me? What is Jesus saying in that moment? When anybody tries to hurt his church that he is building, it is an affront and a threat to him personally. Why are you persecuting me? So here we see the beauty of the intimate relationship of that divine unity that we have with Christ when we receive him and accept him and, and submit to his authority over our life. And he comes in and lives with us and makes his home with us. Whenever anything happens to us, it happens to him. That is a beautiful picture of unity with Christ. That's why he would pray in John 17 that they may be one, Father, as you and I are one May these people be one. That's what we're striving for. Romans 8, 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the moment where that process is taking place for Saul. And if we have received Christ and we've submitted to our Lord, then that's what's happened to us. And the Spirit dwells in us. So anything then that we do apart from God's Word in obedience and submission to Him, in sin, missing the mark, is an affront to who Christ is and what He did for you. Not trying to make anybody feel guilty. There is no shame because Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let this be encouraging. Not shameful. Not guilt-ridden. Because we're not trying to guilt you back into a better relationship with the Lord. That's not his point. 
His point says, I love you enough that I don't want you to go that way. All you need to do is open your eyes, and open your heart, open your mind, and let me lead. Let me guide. Let me give you everything that I want to give you. So it's the importance as we live in Christ and follow the way. Remember, we're representing not just another sect of religion, not just another group, not just, as the world says, one more option to get to heaven. That is not who we are. And why this life in Christ will be hard is because we can stand confidently in boldness and say, no, life in Christ is the only way, the only way to heaven. Stop believing the lies that you can live however you want in sin and do whatever you want and still think you're good enough to make it into heaven. Not true. Not true. We need to be bold because of the Spirit of Christ in us. To say, no, he is the only way. The only way. So while on assignment from his high priest, remember he went to his high priest, he got a letter giving him authority to go to Damascus and persecute and imprison these Christians. He has a wonderful moment with what he would understand later and he just met his great high priest, one who was higher than anybody else. But in his pride, his arrogance, and his hatred, he found humility, he found grace, he found mercy, and he found love. Remember when he told Pastor Timothy that he acted ignorantly in unbelief? So when he put his faith in Christ, he carries on that explanation because he says this in first timothy 1 14 and the grace of our lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in christ jesus it says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom i am foremost paul claimed that he was the greatest of sinners the chief of sinners in his way, and what he was doing, claiming to be on assignment from God to persecute this church. But he says, I receive mercy. And for this reason that in me, as the foremost sinner, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's the radical transformation that Christ can give. You don't have to just try and work your way into his good grace. You admit where you're at is wrong and a sin and affront to who Christ is. Then submit yourself to him. Drop on your face before him and say, I got, I got, God, I need you. Because in my own strength, I can't do this on my own anymore. It's not within my power, not within my ability to just try and stop sinning, try and stop giving you a bad name to those around me. No, I need you, Christ, and let him transform your mind, your life, so that you can then confidently say, it's because of him in me that I can now live according to his ways. So we called this a conversation. Did Saul respond? We said in one respect, yes, he did. 
He said, who are you, Lord? Knowing it was a voice from heaven. Knowing he was having a moment. He said, who are you, Lord? And Christ responded, I am Jesus. If we pause on that moment, everything the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, chief priest, scribes, etc. were doing was to eliminate Christ from this earth because of everything that he was claiming to be. Remember, Saul was a Pharisee that was studied and approved and was rising through the ranks, and he studied in Jerusalem under a high priest named Gamaliel. Now, I'm not saying this is true because we actually aren't told in Scripture, but there is probability that Saul had an experience with Christ prior to this, may have known of him, may have witnessed him in some respect, but he's just not mentioned. I'm, not, I'm just saying that's probability because he was in and around Jerusalem. He studied in Jerusalem. It's a possibility that he knew who Christ was, but he knew his counsel put him to death. He knew his counsel crucified him. He knew his counsel buried him in that tomb. And when all these disciples were trying to claim that he had risen from the dead, they paid him off and said, just keep it quiet, it's not happening, we'll figure it out in time. Possible. So for Christ himself, the living Christ, to look Paul in the eyes and say, I am Jesus. Think about what that did for him in the entirety of his life and everything he was trying to accomplish and do, staring at the one he was trying to destroy. Quite an experience. So he understands the voices from heaven, and because he says, who are you, Lord? In that moment, he's submitting to the authority that is speaking to him, and when he gets the answer that it's Jesus... It's in this moment that Saul is being transformed. He's being renewed. And according to Acts 22, in another testimony given, Saul actually asks one more question of Jesus. He says, who are you, Lord? And then what am I to do? What an amazing word. Because we've said it multiple times here as a church. What does God want you to know? One, who he is, and that's revealed in his word. And we always need to ask, what do you want me to do? If I submit my life to you, what do you want me to do? Saul had been working his entire life in this career. The zeal, the passion he had as a Pharisee. He now says, what do you want me to do? Which means I'm willing to forsake all of that and do what you are asking me to do. It's powerful. Powerful. Anybody here that says, well, I can't start over? Saul says, yes, you can. <laughs> I can't change careers and, and do what God calls me to do if he wants to send me on the mission field, but God, can't, can't you just use me here? Or maybe can I can wiggle my way into helping you by doing this or that in my circumstance because I've worked for, for 20 years in this career and I just can't change now. I've accumulated too much status. I've accumulated too much 
Sick days, I can't give those up. I might lose my health insurance, God. But if we're truly willing to say, God, what do you want me to do? He could say, keep doing what you're doing. And for those of us that he says, keep doing what you're doing, you can breathe a huge sigh of relief. Whew, don't need to move, don't need to locate, I don't need to change jobs, I, I can maintain everything. Okay, good, thank you, Jesus. But, but, <laughs> he may say, I need you to go there. I need you to do this. And it has nothing to do you've been dedicating your life to. It has nothing to do with whatever certificates or, or training or whatever else you might have. But if you're willing to submit your life to your Lord, you're saying, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I'll go wherever you want me to go. Everybody in this room answered this question. Will that be easy? I said everybody answered. Come on. No, it won't be easy. It's going to be the most difficult path you will ever walk in your life. For the way is easy that leads to destruction. Do things your way. But the way that follows Christ is hard. It's difficult. But you are submitting to God himself. Jesus Christ, who wants to use you in a mighty way. In Paul's, Saul, Paul's testimony before King Agrippa in Acts 26, he actually lets us in on some more of the answer that Christ gives him in that moment. And it's pretty cool. <laughs> For lack of a spiritual word, it's cool. But in Acts 26, when Paul had asked the question, what do you want me to do? Here's Christ's response. Acts 26, verse 16 says, Jesus speaking, but rise and stand to your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, according to Acts 9, Jesus says, just go to Damascus and wait for further instruction. Acts 22 says, just go into the city and wait. But here we see later on what would be revealed to Saul in that moment of waiting, in the commission Jesus was giving him and how his life was just going to be radically different in what he had called him to do. So he has an amazing point of contact with Christ. He has a heart-wrenching conversation with Jesus in that moment. But in this moment, he is commissioned to go. He commits his life, because as we're told in verses 7 through 9 of Acts 9, the men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So this was a moment for Saul. Those traveling with him saw the light, they heard a voice, but nothing else. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This was a radical moment for Saul. 
So much so that his eyes were open. Now, we can read into that and just say maybe his physical eyes were open. Maybe his eyes weren't shut, but they were open, but he couldn't see anything. So they were open, but he was blind. But I also like how others have looked into this and, and, and kind of used this in the sense that his eyes were, he couldn't see anything, but his eyes were open to who Christ is. He had revelation. He had a new understanding of who this Jesus is, not this prophet they had crucified and buried, but that he was or is who he said he is. He is the Christ. His eyes were opened. In that one of the things Jesus said when he came onto the scene and started his ministry, when he went into the synagogue and opened the scroll to Isaiah, and what he said in that scroll pointed to his ministry saying, I am here to open the eyes of the blind and set the captives free. So Jesus is true to his word in this moment. He releases Saul of that hate, that envy, that pride, that arrogance, that murderous threat, dissension, and ignorance. And even though that glory light from heaven blinded him temporarily, his eyes were still open to the truth. Having had this experience, Saul realizes that everything he was living his life for was wrong. And what might encourage us is Proverbs 21, 2, that says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Saul believed he was truly serving the Lord. He believed he was serving God. But God revealed the true nature of his sinful ways in that moment. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. See, we go about our way, our way, and we think it's right. But in that, we're foolish. In that, we're blind to the truth. So Saul, in that moment, he stopped, he listened, he had that conversation, and he humbled himself to do what God had called him to do. And he believed by faith that Jesus is who he said he is. So having had committed his whole life to doing what was right in his own eyes, he was blinded by that light of truth to do what was right in God's eyes. So he finishes out, he gets up, he has to be led back into, or into Damascus to carry on. But he's led by the hand due to his blindness where he would spend three days neither eating or drinking. And what we're told later on in Scripture, actually in, I think it's uh, Acts 26, no, Acts 22, that he was spending those three days fasting and praying. He was fasting and praying. So he had to spend three days going, what just happened? To, in his own way in that time, giving himself to the Lord in those three days, figuring out everything that I've read and studied and committed to memory and doing as a Pharisee, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, I now had to filter into the way, into Jesus. So God was doing a tremendous work in him. So when we fast and pray, when we rid ourselves of dependency on whatever it is in this world, albeit food or 
in our era, TV or social media or whatever it is, we must fast from time to time. We must do it. We have to do it. We've got to realize how good that is for us to eliminate some of the lies, eliminate some of the dependency we have on things of this world that we think are satisfying us or we think that we need. And in that moment of fasting, we pray and we give ourselves to the Lord and we're dependent upon Him and allow His Spirit to renew us, allow His Spirit to speak to us. When we fast and pray, we are fulfilling Scripture that says, be filled by the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5.18. Commit some time to fill yourself. Be renewed. Eliminate these things that are distracting and discouraging, harmful to the life that God has called us to live. But that's up to you to decide what that looks like for you. Don't be legalistic about it. There's nothing legalistic about filling yourself with the Holy Spirit. What well, does it have to be food? Does it have to be social media? Well, I tell you what, if you think about whatever it is you're going to fast from and go, oh, I, no, I can't do that. I, I like that too much. So maybe I'll choose something else that's a little bit easier. You just revealed your dependency on something you weren't realizing how dependent you were on it. When you choose the easier path, that means this has got a grip on you. So as Paul had to be led into Damascus by the hand, meaning he had people around him to help him get to where he needs to be in his moment of blindness and his moment of dependency, is that not a beautiful picture of what this is, the church? So when you choose something that you know you are dependent upon and you don't feel like you can get rid of or you feel you need in your life, then choose that. And then call on your church family to help you through that time. Because it won't be easy. But that's why we're here. It's why this place exists. And I know we've gotten into a good routine of we come here on Sunday morning, we, we spend some time in worship, and we get into the Word, and we go about our week, and there's not much else right now. And I get that. The Lord's working on me in that. We need more. We need to commune together more. But in the meantime, call on your church family for the help you need because there's something that you need to overcome. Let us help you. Even if it just means you need to lean on us. Paul need, or Saul needed to lean on his traveling companions in that moment. That's all it is? Fine, then let it be that. That's why we're here. I knew I said what I said in the beginning for a reason. So we're going to stop there. Because as we move forward, then we're going to look at the story of Paul in his moment of dependency. How God uses one other individual to come into Saul's life and speak more truth and life into him. And we'll, we'll talk about that next week in the role of Ananias in the life of Saul. So we'll pick up with verse 10 next week. But in the meantime, please reflect and spend time on this and what God needed to speak to you personally on. Yes, we might look at this and go, okay, this is where I found myself in Scripture. This is where maybe God spoke to me in Scripture and what I need to do. But remember first, 
that it's about who Christ is to you. Not what you need to do to better yourself. But what Christ can do when you humble yourself and are dependent upon him completely.